This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi, welcome to another edition of the Money and Markets podcast. I'm Dan Coatesworth, and if you've had to fill up at the pumps, you know this has been quite a week, and these supply chain issues aren't just impacting the consumer. So Danny Houston is with me on the podcast this week. So Danny, we've seen some real turbulence in markets as well, haven't we? Yeah, we have, Dan. Hello. Uh, From a three-year high for the price of a barrel of Brent crude to fights on forecourts and a return of toilet paper rationing, consumer confidence really taking a knock. And investors, well, they seem to be thinking hard about what's in their portfolio and what needs to go. Yeah, we've seen sort of sell-off of sorts of these um, sort of fast growth companies. And with that, a surge in bond yields, which seems to suggest the market is now pricing in rate rises and investors potentially anticipating a real winter of discontent. There are always bright spots and it's not often that retail is the sector to deliver. But next... Wow, it's delivered in spades. I'll be digging through its outlook and assessing why the bricks and mortar versus online debate is apparently dead and why hybrid retail is the new normal. We'll also be catching up with AJ Bell's Head of Investment Analysis, Laith Calif, about ethics and the growing part it's playing in decisions about where we put our money. And as 007 arrives fashionably late to the big screen, I'm hoping Dan might do a few impressions or failing <laughs> yeah. that. Run us through some intriguing Bond stats. Um, yeah, I, I'm going to save the impressions for later. I, I do live in hope. But have you been to the cinema recently? Uh, yeah, I went to see the Fast and the Furious, whatever number it's reached these days, 900 <laughs> and something, um, which is very good. But I've got, I've got tickets all, all booked up for for the James Bond film this weekend. How about you? We haven't been yet. um, And I think that's more to do with the fact that we've been crazy busy than any reason that we haven't wanted to go to the cinema. But yes, um, we think we might go this weekend to see Bond as a birthday treat um, for my eldest. Um, Although that does depend whether or not I can actually fill up because honestly I haven't wanted to face the queues and frankly when you look at the little sign you know with the price per litre on it uh, that really isn't making me happy particularly because I also today have for the first time flicked the heating on and I know that those bills are going to rise. Oh wow I mean that's that you can't do that till the start of October that's you've you've, you've gone far too soon could have waited a few days. <laughs> well my husband would agree with you and I did try the jumper and I even had a woolly hat on at one point because it was cold last night yes. um, but no I, I did I, I went for it I flicked it on it was only on low but I did put it on. Yeah I mean obviously that yeah, I think we're all sort of facing high fuel prices this winter so i think people will be thinking twice about you know when they put that um you know the the, the heating on but you know we, we've got oil barrel all the price at 80 dollars a barrel now so this is a you know this is quite something um yeah I, this is you know, if you think back to the start of the pandemic oil prices were really on their knees you know lockdown demand and uh you know it was just not there producers but continued to pump crude though from their wells and so we got a, we had a sort of a real imbalance between supply and demand but demand's now been picking up in recent months as economies around the world have started to reopen 
Um, you know, at the same time that supplies have been disrupted by a couple of hurricanes passing through the Gulf of Mexico and damaging U.S. oil infrastructure. And then we've had this big surge in natural gas prices that's made oil relatively cheaper alternative for power generation. Of course, that's in turn has increased demand. So all these factors have led to a big increase in the Brent crude oil price and say trading above $80 a barrel for the first time since October 2018. And I saw that um, OPEC had put something out um, earlier today, just talking about um, the fact that it, it reckons that oil will still be the number one fuel source until at least 2045. And I know there's been a lot of talk about the need to increase production and the fact that maybe some producers have needed extra time to ramp up that production. But Honestly, when you look at what's going on in the US, you can realise that they're in no hurry because they want the price to to continue to keep going up. And there's been lots of debate. We, we flagged this earlier in the year that $100 a barrel, not totally out of the question, Dan. Yeah, I mean, it was, you know, I remember us talking about that. And, it, and at the time, it thought, okay, this is, um, you know, potential looks quite quite interesting but now it's almost like you know this is it's more more of a case of um when not if you know we certainly had people like goldman sachs investment bank saying brent crude could easily hit 90 dollars a barrel by the end of this year so imagine what it could be like going into 2022 and you you just look at things like india the second biggest importer of crude oil that's been ramping up its oil imports the um the big trader vitol expects global demand for crude to increase by half a million barrels a day this winter and the big oil producers cartel opec is also predicting a surge in demand but if you can say if you think there's a problem now you, you have to consider that there's been a big reduction in new oil and gas exploration so future supplies could come under pressure and if you think that the, the esg movement this is environmental social and governance you know all the pressure on companies to um, clean up their act. You know that's had a big impact on uh, reducing oil and gas exploration. And the International Energy Agency recently said there should be no new oil, gas, or coal development if the world is to reach net zero by 2050. So, really, you can see that we're, we're at a sort of very interesting point um, in the sort of the, the energy. Uh, industry. And you just have to look at the number of active US oil rigs at the moment. So it's at just over 500. That's double what it was a year ago. But that's half of the 2018 peak and barely a quarter what we saw in 2014. So I think that it just seems inevitable that oil prices are going to be higher potentially for longer. And that does then, of course, have a, a knock on at the pump. Um, I mean, it has to. You just look at the cost of wholesale, cost of fuel, and that's gone up from uh, 123.25 pence Monday per litre to 125.22 by the weekend, which means that, of course, at the pump, the average price of unleaded has gone up from £1.35.87 to £1.36.59 per litre just since Friday. And... Of course, what a lot of people have been talking about on social media is because of the shortage at the pumps. Now, this isn't because of a shortage of fuel at refineries. This is down to a shortage of drivers. Because of that shortage of drivers, some garage owners have maybe taken advantage. But when you strip out that little bit, 
even if we get back to normality in terms of supply, and we are told by the government that we're already starting to see that. A lot of people that maybe needed to fill up over the weekend have now got full tanks. Um, so that that sort of queuing at the pump is expected to go away. But unfortunately, those underlying price rises, they're just not going to go away. And if it was just the rising price of petrol that was an issue, petrol and diesel, then, you know, household budgets could probably deal with that. But it's not because, as you were saying earlier, Dan, you know, some of the rising price of oil is down to this incredible hike in in the cost of natural gas and the, the fact that some electricity producing plants have switched to try and keep costs down. And perversely, that has just pushed up costs. And if you look at the figure, price for wholesale gas is up a whopping 250% since January. I mean, 250%, Dan, have you ever seen anything quite like that? No, it's, you know, the, some of these figures are quite alarming, aren't they, really? So it's, um, you know, it is it is bad. And obviously, from the end of the day, as a consumer, um, you know, in the months ahead, you're, you're really going to feel this. Uh, it, it, and it's going to be quite tough. And of course, we have to think, what's that going to do for the economy? You know, is this going to sort of lead to reduced consumer spending? Yeah, particularly as as we go to flick our heating on, well, the price cap, which of course was introduced to try and keep the amount, the maximum amount that we pay for dual fuel down to a certain point, well, that price gap, you guessed it, yeah, it's going up on the 1st of October. It's going up by 12%. Now, it doesn't take into account the fact that there have been some big hikes just in the last month or so. This was set in August, so expect it to go up again come the spring. But if you're just thinking about how much you pay, if you're on a standard tariff, well, it's going up by 12% to £1,277 a year for the average bill. Now, that's £139 more than the previous cap. But do remember, you know, that is for average use. So if you do use more than is deemed average, you will pay more. And of course, normally at this point, what we'd be saying to you is look to switch, get on a price comparison site, try and find a better deal. But one site that I, I tried to get on today, Compare the Market, it's still not offering the service because it says suppliers are restricting the number of tariffs that they are providing. And you can understand that because we've already seen six small energy suppliers go bust since August. And then, of course, what's happening is the regulator is moving people over. Now, if you are one of those people whose supplier has gone bust, don't worry, you know, you will be contacted, you will get switched over, you will still be able to have your hot water and your heating. And if you have any money in your pot, you know, sometimes over the summer, you you accrue a bit of extra money because you pay a standard amount and maybe you've got a few hundred pounds in that pot. Well, that will still stay and you'll be able to use that, but you are going to end up on this standard tariff. So if you're adding in a rise in petrol cost, a rise in fuel cost. If you've been to the supermarket recently, you will have noticed that the price of what you're putting in your basket is rising. And we're going to be talking about next later, but it's been sort of saying around 2% is the sort of inflation that they are seeing on a lot of things, particularly those big homeware um, purchases that you might make. But that is just going to add to a pressure at a time 
when a number of those extra bits of help that a lot of people have been relying on, if you've been on furlough, furlough is about to come to an end. It's hoped that most people will go back to their job, but that's by no means guaranteed. And even though we do know that there are huge numbers of vacancies at the moment, more vacancies than there are people still on furlough, well, there's still a great period of uncertainty. And at the same time, if you were receiving that universal credit uplift, that extra £20 a week, well, that is also due to come to an end on the 6th of October. So all of this means that people are going to have to really think about where their money is going to stretch because it's not going to stretch as far. But of course, you know, with with all of this, although a lot of consumers are going to be worse off, there are some winners, Dan. Yeah, I mean, there's been some sort of clever investors been sort of scouring the market for for opportunities. So if if you think that you know the prices are going up for you and I, but what about the people who are actually producing this energy? Uh, you know, they're selling their stuff for a greater amount. So what's been happening is that investors have been looking for um, oil and gas companies that have sort of little to no fixed price contracts so um they're looking for the, the key thing here is unhedged if possible or you know hedging is something that banks do if they lend you money um they sort of say well you know we need some sort of guarantee uh, or visibility about the, the level of money you're going to be making in the future so they quite often force um these big natural resources companies to lock in to certain prices but um there are some companies with with sort of very little hedging on the market including serica energy whose share price has risen by 40 percent in the last month so more than 80 percent of everything it produces is gas um you know and the business has just reported that it's bounced back into profit and sort of signaled to shareholders that they're probably going to get a bumper dividend some point this year or you know next year but you know this is it's an interesting company Serica's responsible for around 5% of UK gas production and it's been investing quite a lot um and and now it's sort of benefiting from this because it's got increased production levels at a time of record high wholesale gas prices and of course the other one that people have been looking at is Royal Dutch Shell which is trading at an 18 month high on the stock market you know I would have thought it's going to uh, enjoy some pretty strong earnings, um, particularly in gas, where it, it sort of benefited from um, previous acquisitions in this space. And it, it's not just, of course, the oil price and the rising price of things like like gas, which has been stirring up markets, but company after company have used their latest result update to talk about rising prices, supply chain issues. So it's not really a surprise that markets have been volatile in the extreme over the past few days. Um, And it was Costco that, um, when it was giving its results, announced that it was bringing back that horrendous toilet paper uh, rationing, which so many people saw as, you know, the big thing from the start of the pandemic. Well, it's back in the US because, of course, those ambient things, they're the ones that get left behind. There have been huge issues at ports in the United States. But it's got consumers thinking, but it's also got investors thinking, Dan, about inflation, the spectre of rate rises, and some have been making, it seems, some big changes in their portfolios. 
Yeah, I mean, I've definitely been seeing some interesting movements in sort of the past week or so. Um, yeah, I've just noticed the last couple of days we've seen some of the sort of recent big stock market winners actually sort of see, you know being sold down. So names like Dark Trace, Auction Technology, and Line Trust Asset Management—they've all done pretty well this year but they have been among the sort of the biggest fallers on the FTSE um, 350 index and you know on a broader scale the Bank of America issues a report on a regular basis and it sort of looks at flows in and out of um, all the sort of big investment funds and they said that they've just seen the first big outflow for for equity funds in this year and actually the biggest outflow from US equities since February 2018 and of course, this they're sort of saying that the money is now flowing into cash, into bonds, and into gold. And to me, that's sort of suggesting that investors are positioning themselves for you know, either a market correction or, or sort of a very volatile uh, time ahead. And of course, we've got plenty to worry about with the markets. You know, in addition to rising energy prices, you you, met, you talked about inflation. There's supply chain issues putting pressure on corporate profit margins. Of course, if a company's earning less. Um, you know, that's a sort of removing a key driver for the share price. So, um, you know, don't want to be sort of bringing constantly bad news. But I think if you, as an <laughs> investor, if you've got money in you know, the stock market or, of course, if, even if you're, just, you know, you're, you're only just sort of investing via workplace pension, um, you, you potentially could be um, sort of a, a difficult few months ahead as, as we come to the end of 2021. Forewarned, definitely forearmed. And debt, of course, is a huge one. And I'm particularly here thinking about the continued worry about the Chinese property giant Evergrande. I mean, the amount of debt, the number of zeros on there, it, I know it's uh, prompted a lot of questions from people about how it was able to bring up that huge amount of debt. And a lot of questions about whether it's going to be able to keep treading water. We know it failed to meet one payment deadline, but it has been raising money. Where are we? Well, it's a, it's a difficult one. It's, you know, every day there's sort of um, something happening, and also it's also you know, we're waiting on more information. So, you know, this is you know, a massive Chinese property developer. Uh, it's been struggling to service $300 billion of debt. So the latest, as we're recording this, is that you know bondholders are still kind of in the dark about what's going on with the repayments. But it has just sold a $1 billion stake in Shenjing Bank. But the irony here is that the money it's sold, uh, sorry, the money it's raised from selling this stake will actually be used to pay money to this bank that Evergrande owns. So it's, um, you know, it, it, I imagine that there's, it's, it's, this episode will just keep going and going and going. Um, and, it, you know, it's like I say, it, among, if you add that to the, the issues about inflation and supply chain issues, um, you know, there are some, there's lots of negativity. And perhaps one thing I've, I, I didn't actually touch on earlier, which is worth just a quick mention, is that it would just pay to look at the bond market. So, um, bond investors tend to be pretty clever people, and and at the moment, bond prices are sort of slipping back, which means yields are rising. So, when you see yields uh, going up quite a bit, as we've seen recently, it explains why you've got tech stocks being sold off. So, we just saw a near three percent fall in the the Nasdaq index, the S and P five hundred, which is the the benchmark for U.S. stocks, fell two percent on the same day. And this is all sort of linked to interest rate expectations. 
Um, Because, you know, the valuations of tech stocks are tied to companies' prospects for growth many years into the future. So if interest rates and inflation are both rising, investors are likely to mark down their views of how valuable that future growth will be. And, you know, I think if we see this trend continuing of uh, rising yields and investors sort of thinking twice about, you know, should I have so much exposure to tech? You could see a rotation back into value stocks, which is companies that trade on lower earnings multiples, but in really where you don't really have to pay a high rating to access growth, even if that growth is perhaps a bit lower than you might find with tech stocks. But, you know, it, it I say there's so many, it's like you're, you're constantly, everything whirling around your head and um, you know, we, we never said investing was easy, but you know, at the moment it seems to be incredibly complicated. So. I tell you one business that seems to be making retail at least look completely easy. One, two, three is next. And it's fair to say that when it raised its profits guidance for the fourth time today uh, on Wednesday when we're recording this, um, you know, investors, we saw shares jump. And this has really been a high street success story because um, it now expects full year profits before tax at £800 million, which is £36 million higher than its previous forecast. Uh, pre-tax profits for the first half of the year rose 5.9% to £347 million compared to the same period the year before. Sales were up compared to two years ago and and up a fifth over the past two months. And in their results presentation, which I have to say was one of the best presentations I've ever come across, it was a a delight to read and obviously a delight to pull together because this is a retailer that really got in at, at the ground floor of what is now being called hybrid retailing. Uh, Theo Pafitis has been doing the rounds at a number of uh, conferences and conventions kicking back off. And uh, he has been talking about the fact that the debate that we were having, that we've been having for the last, well, it seems like forever, about which was going to be the last one standing. Was it going to be bricks and mortar? Was it going to be online? Did you need a mix of the two? Well, what Next have demonstrated and, and what it looks like retailers are, are heading towards is what's being called hybrid retailing. So Next does this incredibly well because it's got its stores, but it uses them effectively as glorified warehouses, as great big window dressing. And behind all of that, it's got an incredible operation which allows you at the touch of a button to order what you want, have it delivered to your door within a few hours. And if it doesn't fit, you don't like it, you can either just send it back or you can pop to your local store, try something on, maybe buy a bit more. It just works incredibly well. And they have also been really canny in the names that they have brought on board and how they have worked with them. So they're, they're sort of acting as an online department store in many ways. And they sell a number of the brands in their physical shops as well. And something which they've done, which they're moving towards, is actually to to buy up a stake in some of the names that they are now representing. So it's bought up a stake in Victoria's Secret. Also, just recently, Gap. Gap was disappearing from the UK. You know, it was a stalwart, the high street, with all of that denim for years. 
but it just was a little bit unloved. And Next has taken that on board and it's going to have little pop-up stores of Gap within its stores, but also to sell it with its online. So this is a retailer that really just seems to be going from strength to strength. Well, surely they, they, they can't be escaping all of the issues that are affecting other businesses, like um, you know, how, they, how are they doing on sort of you know, labour availability and, and sort of cost pressures as well? They've done incredibly well to deal with some of the pressures in terms of attracting retail staff. However, they have said, and as I said, most companies at the moment are taking this opportunity of when they release their results to talk about cost pressures and issues with staff shortages. They have said that prices are rising and will rise. And they have also said that some of their backroom operations could start to really feel the squeeze in the run up to Christmas um, you know, in terms of warehouse and logistics staffing. And of course, it is having to pay those higher costs as well. So, you know, shipping costs have absolutely gone through the roof. And it's it's going to have to pass that on. It's talking about an average of 2.5% homeware up to 6%. So it, it did, um, the boss did take the opportunity today to, urged the government to really look at the skills crisis and, and pointed out that, you know, the lorry driver shortage, which has caused such chaos at the petrol pumps, well, there'd been warnings that this was heading towards us for the last couple of years and, and nothing had been done about it. So, yeah, they are going to face issues. They're aware of them. They're mitigating them. And compared to a lot of businesses, they're actually in quite good fettle. So it's going to be really interesting to watch how they go over that all-important golden quarter because a lot of retailers were really hoping that they would you know, make some record results this Christmas because a lot of people weren't able to have their Christmas. But in terms of worker shortages, I did mention it earlier, but of course, furlough comes to an end on Friday. 1st of October, that is it. When you look at the numbers, you've got around 1,004 to 1,008, sorry, 1.4 to 1.8 million people still on furlough, according to the last figures from the Office for National Statistics, either full or part time, and 1.9 million vacancies, um, which was the last vacancy figure that was um, released uh, mid September which just goes to show what the jobs market is looking like. So there is sort of a, a hope that the people without jobs, the people that need a job will be able to fit in. But of course, it all depends on skills and retraining, doesn't it? Yeah. So Good Money Week kicks off on Monday, which is an annual festival of talks and events aimed at raising awareness of ethical finance. Now, clearly, environmental concerns have gathered some serious attention in recent years, Sustainability has been a real buzzword in the investment industry as well. But Laith, how popular is ethical investing now? And is it really living up to its hype? Yeah. Uh, hi, Dan. I think um, I think uh, it's probably quite difficult to live up to the hype, actually, because the hype has been quite significant. Um, certainly in the investment industry, you can't sort of turn left or right without hearing about sustainable investing. Um, and, and I think people tend to think of ESG investing as a 
a relatively recent phenomenon. But actually, the kind of first ESG funds were, were launched in, in this country back in the 1980s. Um, so it's been going on for a, for a very long time. Uh, I think people think of it as a, as a recent phenomenon because it's only really recently started to 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 gather uh, any any momentum so for for years for decades really it was a very very fringe activity um that was um you know kind of participated in for very by a very small number number of people and now it very much seems to be hitting hitting the mainstream so i mean just to give you some numbers to put that put that in context if you look at kind of the the, the annual fund sales of ethical funds, um, ten years ago, back in in twenty eleven, around one hundred and eighty million pounds worth of funds were sold uh, every year in the ethical space. But around twenty fifteen, it was up to around three hundred and seventy million pounds a year. Um, but it's really taken off in the last probably two or three years. So 2019, it was up to £3.2 billion worth. And then last year was, was the real record breaker, um, almost £12 billion worth of, of ethical fund sales. And actually, um, if you look at the overall figures for fund sales in the UK, the ethical funds accounted for around a third of all funds uh, funds sold. So it's definitely something that um, is is picking up momentum. Um, if you look at the kind of total amount of, of money invested um, by UK funds, it's still relatively small, though. It's still about 5% of total total assets um, under management. So there's still some room for, for it to grow quite considerably. But we have seen that, as I say, that big spike recently, because actually for many years, um, the the amount of money that was held in ethical funds was was pretty stable at around one percent, and that that was that's really the case for the last twenty years or so. So, um, a lot of that obviously been driven by you know the focus focus on climate change. Um, um, you know, with lots of activism going on, governments looking at it, lots in the media about that, and also I think uh, more awareness from investors that they can invest their their pension nicer in sustainable funds. Along with that awareness, and, and clearly people do want to invest sustainably for their own ethical reasons, but they also want a good return on their money if they're investing. So how have ethical funds performed? Yeah, I mean, it, it's a really good question, isn't it? Because, um, you know, there are, there, are, there are definitely, as you say, reasons that people invest in this that are not to do with financial return. But obviously, if, if, if it's within your pension or your ISA, then... Um, you know, you don't want your investment to flatline or worse, lose money um, um, simply because because it's being invested ethically. Uh, and actually, probably recently, there are, um, you know, some some suggestions that actually ethical investment can improve investment returns. Um, and, and probably lately, we've seen some people who are who are perhaps entering the fray of responsible investing, perhaps not even with kind of, you know, an, an ethical mindset behind them, but actually investing for financial return and i think particularly of you know the big uh, the big rise in share prices within some some kind of renewable energy uh, stocks that we saw um, last november when joe biden was was elected president and that wasn't that was obviously wasn't people who were just overnight decided that um, you know they've they've overhauled their entire kind of ethical mindset that those were people who were kind of chasing a financial return um, and, and I think there is some merit from that. If you look at the actual performance of, of ethical funds, um, because quite a lot of them have been launched recently, it's quite difficult to get a handle on 
you know, kind of a, a long-term picture of how they perform compared to, to non-ethical peers. I mean, looking at, say, the last five years um, in, in kind of, you know, the main sectors that, um, that ethical funds can be found in, there's actually not a huge amount of difference between the performance that you've got from ethical funds and the performance that you've got from from non-ethical funds. Um, so again, to give you just some examples of numbers, if you look at the North American sector, so funds that are investing in US, you know, over the five year, last five years, ethical funds have returned 15.7% a year on average, and traditional funds 15.8%. So you really, you know, can't put a hair, a hair in between them. Um, it's a bit different in the UK, actually. If you look at the UK um, um, market, ethical funds in the UK have returned 8.2% uh, a year over the last five years compared to uh, non-ethical funds, which have uh, returned 6.5%. So there's, a, there's actually a 2% annual difference there. So that's actually quite quite significant. And, and it probably, you know, if you think about the kind of things that ethical funds in the UK are not going to be invested in that other funds are being uh, are invested in, it's probably going to be, um, you know, tobacco, obviously, defence, but also things like airlines uh, and also oil companies, and you know, while you know the recent um, spike in the oil prices definitely helped share prices in 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 the oil sector, of course, the last five years have not been particularly good for for cyclical stocks like that. Um, you know, pa- partly there was there was a um, kind of you know there was a kind of a, um, a knock on effect from from Brexit on UK cyclical stocks back in twenty sixteen. Um, but also the pandemic, of course, created um, a huge fall in in the oil price and in share prices of oil of the oil majors. So, again, it might not just be that we're looking at things through an ethical um, lens. There are other reasons at play which might have affected um, the performance of ethical versus non-ethical funds, which aren't just down um, to ESG factors. There are broader things going on in the economy as well. What about this concept of greenwashing, where... Sort of suggestions of, of companies or funds exaggerating their ESG credentials. Is there any sort of truth in, um, you know, these stories? Um, I think I think there probably is a, a kernel of, of, of truth in them. I think there's probably a a, a bit of a mismatch, um, really. I think going on at the moment between um, what what you or I or investors generally might think about what uh, an ESG ethical fund is doing. Um, and what some some fund groups um, think is kind of an ESG approach, or or certainly perhaps their marketing departments do. I mean, I, I read a annual report of a of, you know very well known investment trust recently. Um, you know, the first you know five to ten pages were about the ESG approach um, of of the investment trust and how it you know took ESG factors really seriously, um, and then it went on to detail. Um, how its investments have performed, in, including um, Royal Dutch Shell, British Petroleum, uh, British American Tobacco, Imperial Brands, the other tobacco UK tobacco producer. And I suspect that most investors hearing that would just think, well, well hang on a minute, is this an ethical fund or, or isn't it? And, and I think the mismatch really comes from, I think most investors would probably think if you're investing in an ESG fund, then you are not invested in those things. You are you are you are excluding um, um, those those businesses which are um, you know which are, are deemed to be you know doing things that are harmful to the environment or harmful to society. 
Whereas perhaps the investment industry, and there might be a little bit of shoehorning going on here sometimes, is, well, we're taking ESG risk factors into account. We are at least engaging with these companies. We might be investing in them, but we're also highlighting things like, you know, uh, meetings with, with the board. We're, high, we're really kind of, we're, we're making the most of our, our, our voting ability to actually change the direction of those, those companies. So, you know, I suppose, it, you know, if you're, if you're looking at it ungenerously, is that greenwashing? Yes, it is. If, you, if you're looking at it, um, perhaps a little bit more generously, I think what's probably happening is that we are kind of in the in the foothills of a very big trend in the investment space, and some of these kind of concepts, some of these ideas, just aren't really clearly defined. And 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 actually, I think kind of as as time goes on, I think probably we will get, um, you know, kind of things 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 will kind of become clearer, and communications will will. will will become better and we'll become you know we'll 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 have better kind of i think definitions of what an esg fund is or probably number of definitions but again i think this probably does mean that you know from an from an investor's point of view if you are investing ethically then you do probably have to do a bit more homework than just tr- choosing a normal fund because not only have you got to choose one which of course um, you know meets your risk appetite uh, one which you know has a, has a decent performance record and which you think will continue to do well but you also have to find one you know, dig down, have a look under the bonnet, and seeing what it's doing in terms of how it's going about um, its its kind of uh, applying ESG criteria to kind of make sure that it that it matches up with your your kind of own um, mindset and, and 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 ethical criteria yourself. Thanks, Leith, because I guess just like with risk, with ethical criteria, everyone have to make their own decision about that. Um, before we wrap with the real ending, and I hope you're going to stay late because uh, I've got a feeling that you might be able to do a pretty good Bond impression as well. <laughs> um, I just want to touch really quickly on a new number which is aimed at trying to stop people being scammed out of cash. Dan, we've spoken before about scams and I know that uh, you almost, almost think you, you were becoming a victim of one before you yes. were, <laughs> managed to, to hit the disconnect button. But the problem is that scammers do tend to rely on that pressure, that instant terror that you're going to find your bank account pilfered. And if you think it's your bank calling, you might just, without properly thinking, hand over information which then leaves you vulnerable. And the latest figure um, from UK Finance suggested that fraudsters stole £4 million a day from people in the UK in the first half of the year. So here's the number, 159. Nice and easy to remember, 159. You can um, phone it from most of your mobiles, uh, most of your landlines. It's a new service from Stop Scams UK, a year-long trial. Um, Initially, it's got a number of high street banks. Most of the high street banks are involved here, and um, technology companies have teamed up and what it does, it, it means that if you think you're talking to your bank, but you're not sure, you dial 159 and you are immediately connected to your bank. Now, TSB isn't joining till January. I, I know there are a couple of other banks that aren't taking part in this, but most of the high street banks are. And basically, if you're in any worry at all that the person that you're talking to isn't right, you don't need to hunt about for all the information, you can very quickly sort it all out just by dialing 159. A really good idea, I think. Um, surprised it's taken so long to get this far. Yeah, very, very good. 
So, Danny, you're right. Let's finish up with, uh, you know, saying a real ending. It's the, uh, it's the last time that Daniel Craig will be playing James Bond, and you know, the cinemas are going to be um, very busy this weekend with the, you know, the, the opening of No Time to Die. So this is, you know, the, the, the cinema industry needs this film to be a success because it could be it's the one thing this year that could attract people back into cinemas and remind them that actually it's a brilliant thing to do it's an, a, you know, an affordable leisure experience and um you know odeon says it sold more than one hundred seventy-five thousand tickets in advance um wow. you know it, it, investors have certainly been jumping up and down hoping that demand for tickets is going to be very strong. Shares in Cineworld have increased by 24% in value in the last five days. Everyman Media, which is the UK's fourth largest chain of cinemas, last week said admission levels between 21st of July and 16th of September um, across its its state had reached 80% of 2019 levels. And that's much better than expected. And actually, it's really interesting to see the the chief exec buy just over £57,000 worth of shares in the company just after making this announcement so you know the cinema industry is right in the spotlight and um you know i think this is i've got some interesting stats but i do want to hear lath i want to hear you please do your best <laughs> best impression I mean, there is no way i'm even going down this road <laughs> i could do i could do a roger Moore raised eyebrow how about that is that it's probably not good for a podcast but i am definitely Doesn't doing it across. i promise you <laughs> well, my, Dan, Dan you're not getting away with it because I think that you can probably do a good one. No, I, um, I'm going to have to say not today. Thank you very much. <laughs> it's not quite no. the catchphrase I was going for, but you know. Okay. I mean, it's it's my my inbox has been inundated with research, um, sort of based press releases that are you know all around James Bond, and some of them are so bizarre. I thought we'd just have to read a few of them out. Um, so the total cost of the James Bond wardrobe during the five Daniel Craig films has totaled £154,000. Um, Roger Moore is the biggest womanizer across the series, bedding 19 women in his seven films. And J- uh, Daniel Craig is the most violent Bond who's killed 279 people. Um, but I think that probably excludes the the new film. So his tally might even be higher. So it's a... You know, it, <laughs> I think we could, we could be well, here all day that. with these stats. <laughs> when it comes to the whole clothing thing, because um, I, I was looking into Adidas earlier today and they've got a whole load of Bond merchandise, including trainers. 170 quid for a pair of Bond trainers. Oh, dear. I, I can hear the sound of the Velcro doing it up on Leif's feet were, now. Were, were they produced by Q Branch? Because if they've got some whizzy gadgets in them, <laughs> then I think £170 is actually quite a good deal. <laughs> I, I think they've definitely got some technology in there, but only to make you run faster. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's a you know the merchandising machine is definitely out. I saw an advert for a sixty six percent scale of the original Aston Martin DB five model, and you know yours for only ninety grand. And you know th- th- there's so much. Uh, you know, it's not just the um, you know, the cinema industry is looking for this film to be a success. It's it's you know it is multiple multiple industries looking to play on that such strong brand and see how much money they can make from it. Well. 
we will be watching with interest because cinemas really do need a win this time, don't they? Um, thanks for listening. Dan, Dan Coatesworth, will not be with us on next week's podcast, but Laura Souter will be. Uh, I'm going to be chatting to the boss of Real Estate Investment Trust, Shaftesbury PLC, about how the big return to the office has been going and what changes they've been making to their West End property portfolio. Hope you can join us then. Thanks. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor. Thank you.